This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Derelict Puzzle Guardian. Derelict Puzzle Guardian. All problems solved. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's Hell Week! On Pod Cemetery with 1988's Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, and 2002's Hellraiser Hellseeker, Hella Hells this week on Pod Cemetery. <laughs> but before we get into the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. Name two horror movies that feature babysitters. That feature babysitters. Would you say that. House of the Devil counts. Yes. Okay. I will also say Child's Play. Because her friend babysits the boy and then gets thrown out the window. Okay. <laughs> Hit with a hammer. I and appreciate out the, window. The, the attempt to try some different stuff. I like that. <laughs> what, what did they have recommended on there? Halloween and When a Stranger Calls. Yep. Okay. I, f- I see it. <laughs> little more obvious there. Yeah, but I like <laughs> that you didn't do the obvious ones. All right, Kelsey. In Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Julia regards herself as what fairy tale villain or villains? The evil queen from Snow White. Yes, the line is, they've changed the rules of the fairy tale. I'm no longer just the wicked stepmother. Now I'm the evil queen. So come on, take your best shot, Snow White. Yes, it's a very so good, good line. Yes, it's so good. It's a great line. <laughs> that leads us right into our first movie of the week, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, 1988, because they hate alphabetical order in this franchise. Yes. They abandoned the numbering at one point. Yep. This one, they put the subtitle before the series title. Yes. They hate it. And you know what? When it goes on the website, it's going to be in order of release. I don't care what the alphabetical order is. Okay. Which isn't true for all the other There's a lot series of, that we've done. There are a lot of ways where I will do it alphabetical order first. Like Halloween. Yes. Because, you know, it's it's there's three different versions of movies called Halloween. <laughs> you know? And the anyway. We'll we'll get into it when we actually have to get into the rest of the series. But our first movie is Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 from 1988, directed by Tony Randall, written by Peter Atkins, based on a story by Clive Barker, who did stick around and executive produce this one. It stars Doug Bradley, Ashley Lawrence, Claire Higgins, and Imogen Borman. Ashley Lawrence, of course, is the same Kirsty from the first movie. Claire Higgins is the same Julia. Uh, they even have the same skinless Frank, played by Oliver Smith, because uh, he has the he's the guy who in this movie ha- thinks he has all the maggots on him. Mm. That guy plays the Frank without skin, and he did in the first movie too. Mm. 
So he's stuck around. So they got a lot of returning cast members here. But not her boyfriend. He didn't come back. Also her dad. Apparently he was like, because there was another script that had him in it. Larry is his name. And Andrew Robinson, the actor, said, no, I don't want to do it. They talk about schedules. They talk about funding. uh, But apparently he just was just like, my character is done. I don't need to do this anymore. So that's why Larry isn't in this one anymore. Although we do see him. Because this movie has a previously on. Yes. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we get there, Kelsey, what is Hellbound Hellraiser 2 all about? So after the events, immediately after the events of the first film, Kirsty wakes up in the hospital. Her boyfriend has already left and just ain't coming back. Yeah, they let him go. <laughs> they talk about that. They're just like, nah, we, we let him go. He was fine. But you're a danger. He said the same exact story that you said, but for some reason... You need to stay here. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately for Kirsty, her doctor has always been obsessed with finding hell. How convenient. Yes, how very convenient. And he believes her story and uses her information to find his way into hell. And Kirsty goes into hell as well because she thinks that her hus- her father is there, which does not make sense. But that's what she thinks. Well, so. it's, it's where her uncle and her mom or stepmom where her uncle and her yeah, because they were are... bad people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe if you wear his skin and you do bad acts, that counts against you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the movie is available with ads on Roku, Tubi, and Pluto TV, with a subscription to Prime, Hulu, Hoopla, Stars, Directv, and Shutter. There are a lot of free or semi-free options here. Uh, You can rent it for $3 in most places, but it's only $2 on Redbox. You can buy it for $6 on Amazon and Vudu and $10 everywhere else. Should people watch Hellbound Hellraiser 2? I'm going to say yeah. You know, I know what I said in the past. Watching it again a second time, I don't know if I'm just in a very good mood this week, but... I mean, if you liked the first Hellraiser, stick around. Watch this one. It's pretty great. And it's really scary. It's not the first movie. I think the first movie is a little bit, like, darker, maybe better made as a film. But, like, if you're into what was going on in the first Hellraiser. Yeah, this one just goes even more off the rails. Yeah, it's nuts. You just need to surrender yourself to the chaos, which is what I decided after watching Hellseeker. We'll get into that later on this episode. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1988's Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. The fear is reborn. Because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound. Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself. For terror you have never imagined. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And horrors 
you can never escape. And you wanted to know. Now you know. Last year, they brought hell to Earth. Now, they'll take you through hell. Hellraiser 2. Time to play. Kelsey, previously on Hellraiser. We get to see her uncle's death. Uh huh. It's like a montage of the first movie. Yeah, I wrote flashback to the uncle's death or the whole movie more like it. I wrote down here that was fucking terrible. It really was. Yeah, it especially since later she's going to explain all of it. So we get this like stupid little montage in the beginning just to have her re-explain it all later. Right. What was that? Was it Silent Night, Deadly Night, right? That was the one half where they of just, it's just the half first of it's movie. just the first movie. This is not that bad. No. But it is literally just a montage like you might watch on, you know, you're watching a series on HBO Max and they do a little montage of the events that have happened prior to this. It is just like that. Yes. It's not even kidding. It's not trying to couch it in some sort of framing device. No, it's just previously on Hellraiser. Exactly. But then we get to see something interesting. We get to see the backstory or at least a piece of it of the guy who became Pinhead. Captain Spencer, played by Doug Bradley, who, by the way, I can't get around the fact that he always looks kind of goofy without the makeup. You know what I mean? He's kind of a goofy, like, I mean, he's not a goofy looking dude. He's a fine looking guy. But I mean, like, you don't expect him to be under that outfit, that makeup, those pins. Yes, it is incredible how much... Makeup can affect a person's appearance. Also, seeing Captain Spencer, it kind of affects the way you look at Pinhead going forward. You kind of start to see Captain Spencer underneath him. That's a theme that this movie's going for, but I think it might adversely affect Pinhead's image when you just look, oh, look at that. It's the guy with the ears. (laughs) You know? That's what I think of now when I think of Pinhead. I don't think of it that way. (laughs) I think of it as an interesting story that they do not delve nearly deep enough into so they were going to they cut it out of this one and they end up putting it into hellraiser three i remember them going hell on earth deeper into it in three yeah although i can't remember three as well isn't three about the art lady the really rich high society woman who finds the column and like thinks it's an art piece it is the column but it's a dude it's like this this heavy metal rocker guy. Oh. And, you know, his house is like a club or something like that. And then the fourth I there one. Being a club. Yeah, the fourth one is where. That's we the get, one in like the 1800s, the 1700s, right? Yeah, and we get uh, uh, Adam Scott in yes. that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's as far as we got in the franchise, by the way. Then we started the show, and so now we're working our way back through the franchise. Mm hmm. But so we find out that he was a soldier. In, like, India, a British soldier, and he found the box, and they, like I said, they don't give you really any information, so you don't know if he knew what he was getting into when he opened it, but really, does anybody? I think that people are more intrigued by the mystery than they are 
that they know what's going to happen to them. Yeah, I mean, it's a monkey's paw scenario in a way. It's a be careful what you wish for thing. They're seeking out the ultimate in pain and pleasure or whatever. They get the box and they don't realize exactly that they are getting the ultimate, what that ultimate is. There are a few people that end up going like, all right, radical. And we're going to see that in this movie. Yes. But so after we see that and we get to see him actually becoming... Pinhead, we see the ham, the nails hammered into his head and all that. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez. That's that's a moment. <laughs> so, okay, let's just get this out of the way. The special effects aren't great, but they weren't great in the first one either. I mean, there's some stuff that's really good in both of these movies. When, when we get to Julia, skinless Julia, I think that looks fucking incredible. Uh, There are some things that look actually really good and other things that are just, wow, this is 80s special effects right here. But I think, I think it works with the aesthetic that they were going for. Sure, yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think the aesthetic is still frightening today. Yes. Just because it is so outlandishly gruesome. Uh Uh-huh. And I don't mean that in like, the same way that, like, torture porn is, you know? In torture porn, it's like, all you're watching is people hurting other people. But in this, it's because it's a demon, so it makes them way, like, not that it makes more sense, because obviously, in real life, people hurt real people. It's not about demons. But it just makes it more, it brings it to the horror realm, you yeah, know? Uh-huh. Where demons can do these things to you. And then it's not just that, because then you learn that, like Chris said, there are people who look forward to doing the things that the demons do. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's also terrifying. And so, like, and there's kind of this weird, washed-out neon color going on throughout the whole film. And A little, I think, yeah. And I think it really works for it. I think it just, it makes everything seem... Unreal and real at the same time. I like it. Anyway, so of course, Kirsty wakes up in the psychiatric hospital. As Chris said, they, they're like, you know, your boyfriend had the same story to tell, but he's not her boyfriend because he ain't coming back. <laughs> um, we see the cops that went to Kirstie's dad, dad's house mm-hmm. and they find like all the all of the bodies <laughs> of the men that she that what's her name? Julia. Julia killed for... Frank. Frank. That's when we find out that the mattress is still there. The mattress that somehow has magical uh, capabilities. They killed so many people. Bringing people back. uh Cut back to Kirsty and how they're all just telling her that she made everything... She's making everything up. Uh, The doctor specifically calls them fairy tales. And she's just like, fucking fairy tales? Is that what this sounds like to you? You know what? My father didn't believe in fairy tales either. And look what happened to him. But the thing is, is that we find out right away that this doctor is some mad scientist. In the next scene, he's doing horrible brain surgery to like his psychiatric On a brain that looks absolutely terrible. (laughs) And then he's going on and on about how the mind is a labyrinth and which is at least relevant to the plot, but it's a little heavy handed because they are going to go into the labyrinth of hell later on in the movie. Yes. I thought that was an interesting take on what hell might Mm -hmm. look like. This is Dr. Chenard. 
And he overhears Kirsty freaking out about the fact that they have to destroy the mattress because if they don't, they can come back. And because we already know that he's a mad scientist, we can guess that he's going to want that mattress. And-, and he gets it with, like, they don't explain how he gets it or anything. It's evidence, and he just ends up with it. Well, because it might be able to help Kirsty in some way. Maybe that's what he, yeah, uh-huh. We also find out that there is another patient here. <laughs> that Kirsty just immediately feels kinship with, I guess. This young girl who doesn't speak but can solve any puzzle. Yeah, this is uh, Tiffany, played by Imogen Borman, who didn't do a lot. Like, the last thing she acted in was in 1993. Well, she's not the greatest actress. <laughs> but... she She's not asked to do a lot in this movie, really. That's right, but... I think that they wanted a girl very similar to What's-Her-Face in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Patricia Arquette. She reminded me a lot of her. Yeah. The way she looked, the shots they well, did yeah, with her. Yeah, she's, she's brought in as a secondary female lead with some sort of superpower that directly relates to the problem at hand. And they're in a psychiatric institute. Like, Yeah. So this was 88, and Dream Warriors was one year prior in 87, and we know there are a lot of different versions of this script, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's 100% a result of Dream Warriors, but I don't know. I didn't look at the actual release dates or anything like that. Just the moment she got on screen, I thought of Nightmare on totally. Street 3. Totally. And especially with the fact that there's no physical reason why she can't talk. Mm-hmm. Just like the other kid in that same movie, Dream Warriors. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's funny that, like, he he was so excited to find this girl who can solve any puzzle. Because it's not like the the box is hard to solve. I think the implication is that it is hard to solve. But they, yeah, they never show people struggling to solve Just it or press whatever. press a button. No, 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 no. It's the way you touch it, and then you slide one piece up and then forward, and then, like, you do things, and then you put it back into position, and then you trace around this circle, and then it goes up, and then... So, there's more than what we actually see on screen, and what we see on screen, I think every last little thing is important. Because it is kind of weird how some of the ways... So, this is... We'll find out it's called La Marchand's Box in part four, the one with Adam Scott, where they get into the creation of the box... But everyone knows it is the lament configuration. And this is this movie is also where we'll find out about the Leviathan configuration, which is another version of this same box. And there are multiple boxes. Yes, we will see in Chenard's office, there are multiple of them. And apparently it's a thing from Hellbound Heart, Clyde Barker's novella, that all this is based on, where Kirsty wonders... Oh, if this box takes you to hell, is there another box that takes you to heaven or paradise or whatever? And so the concept of multiple boxes all already comes from the original novella. But yeah, you have to like do things to it and then put it back into position and then go to another side and then do more things to it. And then, yeah, everyone knows the very specific final step where every other uh, quadrant slice of this box raises up you twist it and you push it back down and then you've opened the gate to hell Mm -hmm. but so 
in the psychiatric hospital, Kirsty says, because, okay, a figure shows up and writes in blood on her wall, I am in hell, help me. That's that same guy. And she, for some reason, thinks it's her dad. Yes. Which... Because he doesn't have his skin, because they stole his skin in the first movie. So did she not know that Frank didn't have his skin originally? She must have. Didn't she meet him first without his skin in the first movie? And then later on, find out that he stole his dad's skin? I can't remember. I can't remember, but like, she just automatically thinks it's her dad. And I was like... I thought that was that looked like her uncle. It's it's literally the same guy who plays skinless Frank. Exactly. So, yes. Uh huh. And then later, when you find out that it is him, I wrote in big capital letters. I thought so. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> we get to see more of the mad scientist and how he mistreats his psychiatric patients. They're all put in these teeny tiny padded rooms. Oh, and this is in the basement of the facility too, where nobody knows what's going on. It's like he finds the patients that are the worse off and keeps them to himself and they're not like officially patients, even to the point where doesn't he kill Tiffany's mom? That is definitely what they are implying is that he killed Tiffany's mom. So why does he treat Tiffany better than he treats his other right. patients? You think she'd be down there too, especially since the mom's disappeared. She's ripe to be treated exactly like all of his other orphaned patients. Who knows? I guess he wants to treat her well so that she will do the box for him yeah, without I gotta question. Say, I mean, to your point about how it's not hard to solve, I think it is hard to solve. I don't think that you need a puzzle-solving superpower, which is incredibly contrived, <laughs> in order to solve it. Like, Chenard would be able to solve this thing on his own. He doesn't need somebody else to do it. Yeah, Kirsty solved it. Frank solved I'm it. Pretty like, damn sure come he could. On. Yeah. Anyway, this is when Kirsty will tell her whole story to the doctor's assistant, who is going to become her new love interest without yeah. any any work for it, but, without any effort. That I mean, okay. Love. So they say you say that. I think that's the implication, but it doesn't happen. He becomes her sort of like protector. hero, protector. Yes. And you expect that to be, oh, this is the new love interest. He dies like a third of the way through this movie. And we just never think about him ever again. Well, Kirstie doesn't have a problem with just losing her boyfriends. And it's funny <laughs> because later her stepmom will make a joke about it. She'll yep. say, you could never really hold on to things for very long. And it's just like, why is everyone laughing at the fact that this character, Kirsty can't hold on to her boyfriends when you keep writing them out of the story? <laughs> you could just not write that. No, but it's an antagonism from the stepmom is what it is. But yeah, so she tells her whole story. And he doesn't believe her at all. Which is what causes him to go and investigate. Exactly. And I love his investigation. It's great. He, he, he says things like fucking weird when he yes. finds it. And he reads the headlines out loud. And his, his disbelief is just fantastic. He must have been into the shit for years. Yes. And Again, the entire premise of this whole movie lies on the single contrivance that Kirsty happened to be sent to the hospital Apparently nearest to her, where this doctor happens to have been researching this shit for years. Yes. 
the entire movie rests on this single coincidence. That is, that is, yes, correct. This is all the bad stuff about the movie. Just wait till they get to hell. Yeah. When they get to hell, it just, it doesn't matter anymore. That's the best way to put it, I think. Okay, then we get a really sad scene where the doctor brings one of his patients who sees maggots all over him. So, Kyle, the assistant, the doctor's assistant. Oh, I was like, did they name him Kyle? (laughs) (laughs) It's an inappropriate name for this character. No, they did not. He's down there in this secret office where all this research is, and he finds the mattress covered in blood and everything like that, and then he hears the elevator, and so he hides, and so Chenard comes in with this patient who's hallucinating all these maggots all over him, which is a real thing. It doesn't have to be maggots. It could be ants. It could be, yeah, anything. We don't know where Kyle is exactly at this moment in the scene. We will find out. But we don't know where he is. We do know that when Chenard came in with this patient, Kyle was gone. So what happens with this patient? So he puts him on the mattress that she, that the stepmother died on, Julia. And he takes him out of his straitjacket, which was the only thing that was stopping him from scratching himself to death. Mm-hmm. And instead of having him scratch himself, he gives him a straight razor. So he starts to mutilate himself. And that blood dripping down creates the same thing that happened before, which they're just not going to ever explain. They're not going to explain it, so don't bother trying to understand it. Yeah, Yeah, like, you know how in the first one the blood seeps up and then it, you know. So this is the same sort of thing. This blood here, the sacrifice, just like all the men that Julia would sacrifice for Frank, it's the same process. I, yeah. Yeah. But it, does, it But they never really explain why it works. You're yes. Right. And it ends up bringing Julia back. And all of this, and Julia, um, it's very gruesome how she, like, is going after him and he's already all bloody from scratching himself and all this stuff. And I kind of love that the doctor's kind of horrified by it. Horrified, maybe, but like he wants it so badly, he's willing to do whatever. Yeah, he's almost it, intrigued. He, he's he's the Julia from the first one. Yeah, uh huh. You want your end goal so badly that you're willing to do yeah. things that terrify you. Julia's become Frank. Chenard's become Julia in this resurrection plot. Yes, yes. I love the assistant's look while he's watching all of this. He just has this great look on his face, just like, Jesus Christ! This is where we find out he's just behind the curtain. (laughs) After she has successfully gotten the blood that she needs from this dude, she says to him, just like Frank said to her, don't be... No, actually, that's not true. Frank told her, don't look at me. Whereas she says to him, don't be scared of me. Don't be scared of me. But she looks incredible! With those eyes... And, like, it looks really, really good. It is 100% not medically accurate. Ah! But I don't care. It just looks really, really, it's very impressive. It's too bad she has eyelids. Because that would also be part of her skin. But they do a lot of those wide-eyed shots, and they should have just stuck with that. Agreed. So he takes her home. Yeah. Kyle's never found, by the way. He gets out. (laughs) Fine. But he sees all this and realizes that what... Kirstie is talking about was actually true. There are a lot of things that happen here that I think they're trying to build up Julia's character with, but the thing is, is that 
people love Pinhead so much that all this character building they're trying to do for for Julia just doesn't seem to matter. Right. Um, well, first she says she's cold. Yeah. So and they, so he gets her like a white leisure suit. Well, a bunch of heaters, too. But yeah, like white clothes. And then she's just like, don't I look nightmarish? Like, why would you get somebody who is literally covered in blood and muscle? White a clothes. A white leisure, leisure suit, of all things. And so instead... He wraps her in gauze. Like a mummy. Like a mummy, and then puts her in an evening gown. Oh, it looks so stupid. It looks really stupid, especially when you can tell that the hood that she's wearing is, is, is all one piece, and it's not actually the gauze. Mm-hmm. That's pretty bad. The finger, the wrapping around the fingers is the same thing as just gloves. That's really bad. It's a mummy in an evening gown. Yes. Yes. But it's okay, because it's going to get better. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. I know the sounds... Part of what I love so much about this is that it is so ludicrous. And again, like, I, I don't think we're doing a good job of go, giving the aesthetics. I, I mean, I enjoy that they made his entire home white so that everything she touched mm-hmm. was stained with her blood. Yep. And I love I love her just confidence yes. the whole time. There's not an inch of her that's, like, afraid of what's happening. It's just like, no, I know what we need to do. You know? And I like that. And yeah. I kind of love the ethereal feel to it. There was kind of a kind of a softening of the film. I would say that that made it Do you know what I mean by softening like yes, a lighting? I do. Yeah. Okay. I I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but to me, a lot of the feeling of this movie is like a low slow growl. It's like if I was to put this the feeling into one concept, it would be like that. People kind of talk softly but confidently. The action doesn't happen quickly. You know what I mean? Like it's it it's like a low, extended growling throughout the entire movie. And I kind of love that. Is it? Even when the doctor's on the screen and Yeah. Okay. Oh, he does some weird noises. If we're talking about noises. His noises are great. (laughs) Kyle comes back after what he's seen, and he's just like, we need to get you the hell out of here. Like, we need to make sure you're safe. (laughs) No clothes. (laughs) What? They go into the closet, and they're like, damn it, there aren't any clothes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Shit. I'll get you clothes. Kirsty's like, I'm going. I'm going to take care of this. Uh-huh. And he's like, fine, I'll go with you. Because, of course, he's in love with her. Everyone falls in love with Kirsty the uh-huh. moment they meet her. Yep. She and Kyle are going to go to the doctor's house. What they don't know is that at the same time, and I don't know how they did this. Like, I, like what's the timeline here? Because the next thing we see, they've killed a ton of women. A bunch of those people that he's been keeping... Of those patients he's been keeping, she kills them to regain her skin. Oh, that's who they are. I thought they were. I thought it was supposed to be women, like the I, same no, way I don't, that they did it no, the I first don't think time. So. Okay, but I just love that when she gets her skin back, that also means that she gets her perfect hair and makeup. Oh yeah, uh-huh. as well. It all comes back. Mm-hmm. And the music is all very silly. And it's very, it's very grotesque. And I loved, 
I loved all the things about it. I loved that her hair and makeup was perfect. I uh-huh. loved the ridiculous music. I loved having the gross bodies there while they're making out. Like, uh-huh. it's just like. Oh, he I'm does make out for- with her when she's a mummy and has no skin still, by the way. That yeah, happens. but she did that with Frank in the first one. Yeah, no, too. I just think it's really cool. Oh, it's grotesque. I was a little sad they didn't put blood all over his face because that's what would have happened. Didn't they? I don't think they did. No, I thought they did. Oh, well. I don't know if they're there when Kyle and Kirsty get there, but Kirsty ends up finding all this research that the doctor has done. And he has found out about how Pinhead was originally a captain. Now, don't ask me how he knew about Pinhead or how nope. he found out about it, but... You know, when you're good at research, you're good at research. They don't bother explaining it now. He has a picture of the captain in his files, and Kirsty like seizes on that. And then we get to see more of the doctor and Julia. So yeah, it must. Yeah, this is all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. They're downstairs, and Julia and the doctor are upstairs Mm -hmm. because this is when Julia is gonna. uh, tell her, take your best shot, yeah, Snow White. Uh-huh. But there's some really fun framing in these scenes I wrote down. And, like, at first, she's she seems like she's perfect, Julia. And then the shot, she just walks further into the shot, and you can see her back is still grotesque. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I thought that they just they did a lot of fun things with that. That's the shot where she confronts Kyle alone in that room and then, like, hypnotizes him or something. And starts making out with him and then reaches her hand into the back of his head. That's, I guess, how she absorbs people's essence. And her back is fine now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is when Kirsty comes in and realizes Julia's here. Oh, my God. This is the take your best shot Snow White moment. They didn't tell you, did they, Kirsty? They changed the rules of the fairy tale. I'm no longer just the wicked stepmother. Now I'm the evil queen. So come on. No! Take your best shot, Snow White. Yes, but how do, I'm not sure that they get to have their big fight because isn't this when the doctor shows up with uh, the chick who can solve puzzles? Yes. And she sa- and he says, Julia, now it's my turn. I brought you back to life. Now you're going to do the thing that I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And she's like, are you fucking sure? Which is weird. Because she seems confident enough once they go back to hell. But she's like, are you sure that this is what you want? And he's like, it's what I've always wanted. I have to see. I have to know. So he's just obsessed with hell for some reason. Yeah, and pain. And he talks about in his his opening little monologue when he's doing the brain surgery. And he talks about the labyrinth and everything. He's like, you know, the pain and pleasure centers of the brain are very closely related. And so I think he's just fascinated with that. Because that's what Hellraiser is all about is... Is pain meeting pleasure. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not sure what they do with Kirsty during all of this. I don't remember. But they get Tiffany to open up the box. And it's frustrating because they make it seem like Tiffany is well aware, like not well aware, but aware that, that the shit around her is happening while she's fix while she's playing with this box. But she has this obsession, I think is the point. That is a good point. So she opens it, in come the Cenobites, and of they course, start to go after her. The female one is of course gonna go after her. Who is still her. credited as female Cenobite, by the way. And Pinhead says No. It is not 
Which contradicts, like, the entire fucking franchise. In the first movie, in Hellseeker, which we're going to watch in a little bit, it's always, you open the box, you summoned us. You know, you didn't have to know what you were doing. We came. Exactly. But I don't think so, because she did know what she was doing when when Kirsty opened it. Did she? You think? She knew that it would, she knew it would call something. She knew it would help her father somehow. And so she wanted them to come, I think is what it is. Whereas this girl had no clue that anything was going to happen. She was just given a puzzle box. Yeah. How often do you think it's happened in the life of this box where Cenobites show up and then Pinhead's like, no, 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 no. They did it on accident. All right, everyone back in hell, back in hell. I disagree. Okay. I disagree with you. I feel like it I feel like it works uh because as I said, in the first one, she did want them to come, not for that reason, but she wanted them. And I think in their opinion, that's enough. That's enough. You mm-hmm. wanted us, and this is what you get when you call us. I just really hope that I I'm not confident. I just hope that throughout the series we get a little bit more about the specifics of this. We'll have to see. I hope so. But it doesn't matter because the doctor and Julia have already walked away into one of the other tunnels that opened up behind them and no Cenobite came out of it. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So they start walking through and Kirsty is just obsessed with the idea that her father is in hell. So she has to go in there for her father. And meanwhile, Tiffany is lured away to a hellish carnival for some reason. I wrote down, wow, they didn't even try to rationalize the carnival, did they? No rationalization. It's just one of those. Oh, is it, aren't, aren't homicidal clowns and carnivals scary? And that's the only reason that it's here. Yes. She comes across a clown that is juggling his eyes, which then brings back her memory of her mother trying to get her saved by the doctor who then had her mother killed. Yeah. I don't know how those connect, but what do I know? Kirsty at the same time is taken to what she thinks is her home. But there's blood everywhere, a baby's crying. There's like always babies crying in mm-hmm. Hellraiser. Wasn't there a baby crying in the first well, one? Well, there's a babies lot too? crying, there's moaning and pleasure. There's a lot of that as your sort of ambient soundtrack. And then she finds, like, cockroaches and stuff, and that's when the Cenobites come upon her. And they're like, you open the box again, what's the story this time? You know, we're not going to accept it this time. But they totally do! Well, she's like, I'm not offering you a deal, just information. And what she's able to do is remind Pinhead, by showing him the photo that she took... That he was once human, because I think that's something you you lose when you become a Cenobite, is you lose your memories and you ultimately lose your humanity. He starts to remember that he was once Captain Spencer. And that's going to set something up for later. But how does she get out? How does she get away here? Are they like, oh. No, because oh, okay. she she <laughs> says the reason I'm here is because I'm looking for my dad. And they're like, fucking good luck. <laughs> Have yeah. fun running around in hell. You're never going to find him. Yeah. So they just kind of let her go, right? I think so. Yeah. 
Not totally sure. <laughs> I don't remember what happened. Listen, a lot of stuff happens in hell, okay? And then we get back to the doctor and Julia, and she says the line, I have such sights to show you. Yeah. I have such sights to show you. Which is fun. I enjoyed that. And she puts him in, like, an elevator designed to look like... Oh, no, that happens... Uh, well, okay, there's, like, a ton of things that are happening okay. kind of all at the same time. Yeah. So they're walking around, and we'll get there, and she says that. And Kirsty comes upon Tiffany somehow, which is funny because the way they talk about it, they act as if, like, hell is enormous. Yeah, and then people just keep bumping into each other. Bumping into each other. <laughs> Where is everyone else? Yeah, exactly. They don't run into any other people in hell. So she finds Tiffany, and she's like, Tiffany, you've got to help me close the box. But, of course, Tiffany's not talking. And I guess she thinks that they need to go somewhere else, so they start running through. This is when we get to see the labyrinth of hell and the Leviathan. If you've seen Labyrinth... You might think of that, like the picture is kind of similar, but I mean, it's a labyrinth. What do you want? Yeah, it's, um, it's very matte painting-y. Yes, it is yeah. a matte painting, but I thought it was an interesting take on what hell might seem like to create this big labyrinth that's just filled with suffering. I think it, that's an interesting thought. Not quite sure I'm down with the Leviathan thing, because that doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, not maybe is, it does, but they don't bother to explain he it. He is the god of pain or something like that and there's like this air horn sounding he's gigantic and it's like this diamond shaped thing and kind of like the eye of sauron uh, i mean in concept sure in concept yeah and it just floats over this labyrinth and it has like searchlights and there's this air horn sound that's being made and apparently it is dash dash dot dash 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 dot dot it is Morse code for God that's being airhorned out in the middle of this scene. Huh. That's interesting. Hmm. So, the doctor is in terrified awe of the Leviathan. And this, like, elevator pops up. Yeah, and it's designed... The outside is painted to look like the Lament configuration. It has that same black and gold symbols and stuff like that on it. And she's like, this is what you wanted to know. This is what you wanted to see. Now you know. Now you see. And it's great because she's saying this all very calmly as he is being tortured. He is being like taken into this box with all kinds of bizarre like tentacles things. and things like that and and this is when the movie gets started like oh this boy. is when the movie just goes off the rails and it becomes terrifying and fun at the same time yeah and she says goodbye doctor as the door closes uh -huh. on him meanwhile kirsty stumbles upon this room with all these concrete beds that slide out with sheets over them. Right, but the reason she goes in is because she thinks it's her dad's house yes. in hell. Yeah, yeah, she, like, sees that she's at home, basically. Well, like what they did in Insidious in the yes, further. Yes, in the further, yes. Um, and underneath these sheets are these bloody, writhing female bodies that seem to be skinless, but also uh, in a lot of pleasure. They're moaning sexually and everything, and they keep sliding out as she approaches them and sliding back in as she gets as she passes them. 
And then she finds Frank. Skinned Frank. And he explains that this hell for him is that he'll be teased for forever. And I'm just like, God damn. I'd be great. I'd be happy if that was my hell. I understand that. <laughs> of that's all the things to- that could happen yeah. to you, yeah. You just get to live your life and just be like, damn, I don't get to have sex anymore. Like, yeah, I mean, God. eventually, eventually you would get used to that, I think. <laughs> yeah. But that's just the worst thing that could happen to Frank, apparently. Uh-huh. And he basically is. He tries to, like, convince her to stay. And, like, have sex with him. Uh-huh. And then she acts like she's going to, but then she's like, I'd rather burn. This and she so weird. somehow, somehow she knew that if yes. she picked up one of the sheets and threw it, the entire place would catch on so fire. So she throws it on this vanity where all these candles are. Yes, no, I have this written down. The I'd rather burn moment is a little dumb. She lights a sheet on fire, and the whole place gets lit up with, like, magic fire? <laughs> and then it burns off his skin? If something burns, everything burns? Okay, then why don't the candles count as something burning? Why is it specifically that sheet burning that sets everything ablaze? I don't know. Because it's not like, oh, the sheet catches fire, and then the fire spreads. The sheet catches fire, and then things spontaneously combust. Maybe it's a punishment for trying to end your hell. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And it's just convenient and somehow Kirsty knew. I don't know. I, yeah. But he's just like, not my skin, not my face. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, so hell couldn't even be bothered to take off his skin and face. <laughs> yeah. Kirsty had to do that. She's worse than hell's uh-huh, punishment. Apparently. But fuck Frank, man. He yes. deserves everything he gets. And then Julia shows up, and he for some reason thinks Julia's still in love with him after he killed her in the first movie? So there was confusion in the first movie where he goes to stab Kirsty. Kirsty spins out of the way, and he doesn't stop himself. He just continues it forward and ends up stabbing Julia and then says nothing personal, babe. Right. He's not exactly sad that he accidentally stabbed he her. He was kind of like, I was going to kill her anyway. Yeah, nothing exa- personal. Pretty much. Yeah, and so this time, when she comes across him and he's like, oh, Julia, oh my god, I haven't seen you since I got here. Because remember, this is happening almost immediately after the first movie. She, I guess, is seeing Frank for the first time, and she kills him. And I forget how she kills him, if it's with a knife or something. She takes his heart out. Oh, that's right. And then she says, nothing personal, babe. Yes. Yeah. Nothing personal, babe. And that's fun and everything, but it's just, it's ridiculous that he would think that she would be yeah, okay with uh-huh. it. He's desperate. I mean, like, I get that, like, he he did, he had that kind of power over her in the past. Yeah. And I guess a, a prick like that would think that he would still have power over you. Yeah. That's true. So, they're running away from Julia, and she fucking drops the box. Yep. The Leviathan configuration version of the box. Like, what? <laughs> what? You are very clear. You know well she gets back that, up that is the only way to get yourself out. leaves it there. It's such a minor thing, too, because as they're running through this labyrinth, Julia's going to come chasing after them. And she grabs it. And yeah, and so then there's this vacuum force, this suction or whatever that that is trying to pull them deeper into hell it grabs onto julia more 
Well, because both Kirsty and Tiffany are holding on to the wall, and she's holding on to Tiffany, and, but the suction... And the the Leviathan configuration as well, because yes, she picked it up. but the suction is so great... Oh, it's so good! That this she is gets great. split out of her skin. She Her body just gets ripped from her skin suit. I fucking love that. And it's all just the skin drops limply to the ground once it takes Julia. I just love that it's just so bizarre. I'm just like, yes. what just fucking happened? I don't know. And, you know, you can rationalize it. Like, you know, she just got her skin back. Maybe it's not fully attached yet. That's why it so easily comes off. And that's really cool. And but we don't it didn't see want it the here. box. Because the box yeah. doesn't get sucked up. We don't see it here. But... Tiffany grabs the Leviathan configuration again. So it's almost like well, it she, didn't no, matter. She comes happen. back later. Oh, and they grab does, it. Is that later what happens? Okay. Because yeah. it was stuck in the skin hand yeah. thing. <laughs> but they don't take it then. They have to come back and get it. Yep. This is also the time when the doctor comes back. And he is now a Cenobite. And he is stoked about it. Yes, he's like, I can't believe I ever hesitated. To think I hesitated. He doesn't forget his memories because he's after Tiffany. I think it happens over time. Okay. I th- well because I think the that the captain's look, been been like this for however many decades. Look, this movie is not a consistent film, but just the visuals and just the bizarre nature of it, it makes it a fun ride. Yeah, it's not necessarily a good movie, but it's it is fun to watch. And it's terrifying at the same time. The thing about Chenard's Cenobite design is that he has these tentacles, and then there's one giant tentacle that is suctioning onto his head, and he's just floating around being being held aloft by his head and by this tentacle. Where this tentacle is coming from, where if you were to follow it, it would lead, not explored. No. Unimportant. It's just off screen. That's all you need to know. And he's just like being pulled around uh, by the top of his head, and he has these tentacles that turn into things like bone saws and scalpels and stuff like that since he's a surgeon in some shots they're done in this claymation style yeah that i am just in love with <laughs> it looks neat as fuck i have written down here they're neat as fuck yeah, the visuals are so entertaining and bizarre it doesn't really look great like, you don't think it's really happening, but it looks cool. Yeah. So before he finds them, he finds the Cenobites. He finds the uh, Butterball. He finds the Chatterer, I think is his name. Not, I mean, no, because you're missing the great moment when they first see him. It's just Kirsty and Tiffany. Remember, guys, Tiffany hasn't spoken oh, at yes. all. <laughs> now, I wish they had made this an even bigger moment. I wish that she was a better actress and this was better well, said. It's, f- it's fun that it's just like this moment that you can miss. I just fucking love, like, he comes out and she's just like, shit. <laughs> yeah, she says that or holy shit or something like no, that. No, it's just, just shit. <laughs> yeah, like that's the only thing she says. The doctor is in shit. For a while there, they think they get out. Yeah, and they, they get into the hospital, uh-huh. but it everything about it is off. Everything about it seems strange, and it's because the hospital is still in hell. Mm-hmm. You are now in his version of the hospital. Yeah, and he's coming after them, and 
And yeah. that's when the other Cenobites show up. Yeah. Because he's, he's, he's closing in on them, and the Cenobites show up, and they're like, time to play. But Pinhead is like, I remember. Yes, so Chenard kills the Cenobites, all of them. And when they die, they revert back to their human form, including the Chatterer, who is just this little fucking kid. Yeah. But because Pinhead, apparently, this is the implication, because Pinhead was reminded of his humanity earlier on by Julia, he sort of, he has that humanity there and cannot be so easily dispatched by Chenard. So he kind of reverts to being human and then dies as opposed to the other way around. Well, okay, so... You're you're mi- missing a couple of little details here. Pinhead tries to fight the Chenard. doctor, yeah. mm-hmm. and the doctor shows that he is stronger than them, which doesn't make I don't know why he is, uh-huh. but he is. And yeah, and then he kills them, and they all turn into humans. Pinhead allows Kirsty and. Tiffany to leave, I assume, because he remembers his humanity. Yeah. But then right after that, the doctor kills him. I said it's a little cheap. How are they going to bring him back? And I don't remember how they bring him back in part three. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> so, Tiffany realizes that she needs to go back and get the the Leviathan box that Kirsty dropped like an idiot. And I love this. She's like, oh, shit, I got to go get it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to lightly jog. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it's it's bad. It does not look like she is running at all. She gets it. And when she grabs it, she has more memories of what the doctor did to her mom. Uh-huh. And so she becomes like an angel figure and, like, runs out onto this pathway that, you know, it's a tightrope type pathway. And she gets down on one knee and she's holding it up and she's got her eyes closed. And it looks so ridiculous. And again, it's just part of the ride. Like, it's just mm-hmm. so fun and out there. And So, Kelsey, Tiffany needs to solve the Leviathan configuration. But Chenard is going to kill her. Yes, the doctor comes up above mm-hmm. her. Like I said, because she's on this, like, tightrope walk and he comes up above her. How... How is it that Chenard does not kill Tiffany immediately or play with her or anything and allows Tiffany to try to solve the puzzle? Do you remember what happens? I'm sure you have notes. Yes, Julia comes back. And is like seducing him and stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm totally into this. I knew you'd come back. Everybody <laughs> thinks that Julia's going to come back for them, apparently. And, and it, give, it, it gives Tiffany enough time to solve this puzzle. Yeah, I wrote I wrote down, good thing they're making the moment last. <laughs> and then Julia kind of like turns on Chenard, I think. And I forget what exactly happens, but his tentacle that's holding onto his head ends up ripping his head right off of his body. I don't remember why. <laughs> and it kills Chenard that way. But in all this hullabaloo, Tiffany is falling off of this platform that she's on. And Julia reaches down at her hand and says, trust me. And as Julia is pulling up Tiffany, like the skin starts slipping off of her. And then when she pulls Tiffany up, she pulls all of her skin off of her, revealing that it's Kirsty wearing Julia's skin suit. Yes. 
Oh my god. Yes. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. This movie is nuts. And like you're laughing and you're scared of the visuals and you're having fun. You got to watch this movie, guys. I don't know why you didn't think you liked it. I remember. I don't know. I remember thinking that about it. And it I, is I, nonsense a little bit. Oh, totally. It is, it, there are bad parts. Like, we our first, first half of this conversation is like, oh, this shit doesn't make sense. And this shit, you know, like, so maybe that's the feeling that I came. And I was expecting to hate this. And maybe that's to my benefit. Like, just like with you and um, Hereditary, where the second time you saw it, you enjoyed it more. Like, I feel like this this was one of those things for me because I was like, this movie's dumb, but it's Hellraiser, so I guess it's kind of cool. It allowed me to come into this and I think really appreciate it for the nonsense chaos that it is. So they're running, the doors are closing, they just make it back to real life, and then... There are moving men cleaning out chenard's home because he's dead and disappeared now and they find the mattress and he ends up getting pulled into it and then the pillar comes out of the mattress this is the same pillar that the chatterer was like tied to when we saw him as a little boy Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a pillar that comes back in part three yes but the other moving dude sees this and is like oh my god and it's this this road spinning pillar with all these chains and hooks and things and, and dead and babies skin and that, yeah and like yeah it's it's Faces. a little bit hokey but also a little bit cool it's very obviously a prop there's it's nothing metal. about it that looks real it's very metal yeah it's oh yeah call it heavy metal but then at the very end we see the homeless man from the first film Saying, what's your pleasure, sir? Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I just love how off the wall this movie is. I know I keep saying the same shit Uh over and over again, but you gotta gotta see it to know. Yep. I have written down here. It's great because you can just make up any old bullshit to resolve the main dilemma. Like, anything can happen. Anything can happen. So it's like, whatever, you know? And that will feed into the next movie we're going to watch in a little bit. I also have written down here, deathbed, the bed that kills. (laughs) Probably for that moment where he gets sucked in. Do you have any other notes, Kelsey? Nah. What do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to guess it's low. I'm going to say 53. 50%. There you go. Hellbound Hellraiser 2 retains the twisted visual thrill of its predecessor, although seams in the plot are already starting to show. So they, I mean, they got, I think, the same appreciation there not as good as the first one but it's it's hellraiser all right and it goes weirder i feel than the first one because the first one is very much about masochism yes this one isn't as much about masochism right and i think when we watch hellseeker you're going to find that it's even less about masochism yes and i'll tell you why a little later it has a 41 percent metacritic do you think that this is overrated or underrated? Underrated. What would you give it? Can I ask what I gave the original Hellraiser? You may. You gave it a 77 and I gave it an 80. Had a 68 Rotten Tomatoes. You can give it a 71. I think I should have given the original a higher score than I did, but whatever. Okay. I'm going to will... give it a 71 because I could totally watch this again. It has watchability. Yes. It's yeah. scary. It's fun. It's wacky. Yeah. I will give it a 69, dudes. 69, dudes! I don't think it quite hits that 70 for me. But 
I think it's a lot better than it gets credit for. There's just something about this movie that is fun. It has all the promise of an entertaining horror franchise still. Yes. Roger Ebert, in his review, said that Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is like some kind of avant-garde film strip in which there is no beginning, no middle, no end, but simply a series of gruesome images that can be watched in any order. Which is an interesting segue into the next movie that we're going to watch. But Before we get there, Kelsey, horror trivia. Name two horror movies that do not have any supernatural elements. Uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by do not have any. Friday the 13th Part 1 doesn't have any supernatural elements. If you agree with me that she's hallucinating the boy in the lake. Which I don't. It is only not a hallucination insofar as it it becomes rationalized by later entries. But in the moment, she's attacked and goes, ah! And then we find out later that they're like, I was attacked. And they're like, there's nobody here. You're just fucking losing your mind. Like, it's, there was no boy. If she was attacked, why isn't she dead? You know what I mean? Like, it didn't happen. But, okay, I won't say that. No supernatural elements. God, I have to, I know we've done like 300 goddamn movies and... A bunch of them have no supernatural elements. It's just the problem is going back through my mind, all of them. Okay, so let me take a step back. We watched Hagazusa, which has supernatural elements. She talks to her mom. She also lights on fire. You're right, you're right. Vampires in Night of the Devils. What did we watch the week before that? (laughs) It's all a blur. We watched the Scream franchise. The Scream franchise. So, okay, Scream. Okay. I will say, does the Hitcher count as horror? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll say the Hitcher. So bizarre. Such bizarre answers, mm-hmm. but that's fine. Do you want to know what they have? Then? Yeah. What do they have? Silence of the Lambs and yeah. the, the Last House on the Left. Yeah. The other, my next one was going to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Anyway, Kelsey. Yeah. Hellraiser Hellseeker, which is our next movie, begins with the following quote. There is no greater sorrow than remembering happy times in the midst of misery. Where does this quote come from? I have no clue. It comes from Inferno by Dante Alighieri. It's part of his Divine Comedy. Inferno is the part of the Divine Comedy where he actually goes into hell. Hence why they use it here in Hellraiser. I would assume. So that leads us into our next film, which is actually the sixth entry in the Hellraiser franchise, but it's okay because it wraps up the Kirsty Trilogy. We didn't really do that on purpose, but it turned out great. Yes. She is supposedly in Thurry, but like It's a, like a flashback. It's it's like a scene that to explain something about her father or something like that. She's not actually a character in the plot. So these three movies, Hellraiser, Hellbound, and Hellseeker, are a Kirsty Trilogy. Again, it seems like we're really awesome and did that on purpose. Well, you don't need to tell them we're not. <laughs> Hellraiser Hellseeker is directed by Rick Botta, based on characters by Clive Barker, of course, written by Carl Dupre and Tim Day, starring Dean Winters, Ashley Lawrence, and Doug Bradley. What is Hellraiser Hellseeker about? Kirsty's husband is the main character now. I don't know how to tell it without giving away. Like, I don't know. Weird shit happens to her husband. Okay, I will say this. Her cheating husband. Kirsty and her husband are driving in a car when there's an accident and they end up in a river. 
The husband tries to save Kirsty, but as far as he is aware, she dies inside the car having drowned. He wakes up as a suspect in her murder, which is already bad enough if he wasn't also hallucinating all sorts of weird shit. Yes, this movie steals heavily from the premise of Jacob's Ladder and from Carnival of Souls. Yes. Oh, very much so. Absolutely. Interestingly, this might not feel as much of a Hellraiser movie to you. It's probably because it originally wasn't. It was another script that they adapted into a Hellraiser story. Apparently, they did even more to connect this to the original story, but it ended up, ended up getting cut uh, in the edit to explain why, like, how the Cenobites are related and all of that. Cenobites don't really do much in this. Pinhead is more of a, like, a let-me-tell-you-a-story type of <laughs> character. Uh, but he does appear throughout. And although Kirsty dies in the beginning of this movie, she is still very much present throughout the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. She is a very main character in this movie. It is not available via subscription anywhere. You can rent it for $3 or buy it for $10 on the biggies. Or if you're watching it on iTunes, I believe it's a part of a collection starting with number three and going on to the rest for like 45 bucks. So you get like half off all of them. If you buy it as part of this collection or something like that, should people watch Hellraiser Hellseeker? I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary either. I will, however, say if you want a pretty interesting twist on Kirsty that I think says something about the nature of the Hellraiser franchise, it's not as bad as I was worrying it would be. Right, it's not terrible, but it's not it's not very memorable. No. I forgot I mean, as a, a movie lot as a about whole, it. <laughs> but its implications are what I like about it. It's not so much the movie itself. Dean Winters is not made for this type of role. Ugh, I'm sorry. God. You are not. It was no good. It's kind of a bummer. There are some points in this that I really like that it's him, but a lot that it's like, mm, you should not be carrying this entire film. I'm really sorry. I like you in comedies. You're just not ma made for this type of role. But yes, its implications for the rest of the franchise are really, really interesting. You should see my notes. My notes go from, kind of like in the beginning, you can just make up any old bullshit, and so there's no stakes. So it's, it becomes less interesting. I don't care whether any of this is real or if it's not real. And then as the movie goes on, I have allowed myself to be carried away by the chaos. And yeah, anything could happen. Be kind of excited about that, you know, like, yeah, let's just see some weird shit. And like, that's what Hellraiser is to me now. <laughs> and so I was okay with this. I think I might now be like, I was already a Hellraiser fan. I think seeing these three movies, just them in isolation, makes me feel about Hellraiser kind of the way I feel about Wishmaster, which is also a Clive Barker joint. From what I remember, we didn't mind three. But from what I remember, we both just hated four. I don't think we finished four. I think we were so bored, we turned it off. But again, years ago, yeah, we have a different context now. We might enjoy it more. We'll see how that goes. But we're talking about Hellseeker. I will say, if you want a trilogy around Kirsty that is not just a linear progression, just more shit happens to Kirsty, but like tells an interesting story that goes places for her character... Watch this one. If you don't give a rat's ass about Kirsty, maybe it would have been best if this wasn't a Hellraiser movie hmm. in that regard. 
and maybe we would have liked it more. But yeah, if you're not interested in Kirstie, you could probably skip it, like Kelsey says. I mean, the fact that it's a Hellraiser movie is the only reason I, I watched it. Yeah, I wonder what this movie would have been like if it wasn't a Hellraiser movie. Mm-hmm. If it would have just been completely forgettable and we'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, anyway. this was straight to video, right? It was, yes. <laughs> You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2002's Hellraiser, Hellseeker. Welcome to the worst nightmare of all, reality. Which do you find more exhilarating? It's getting hot in here. The pleasure. I prefer pain. Well, what do you think? All right, Kelsey, get us started. How does Hellraiser 6, Hellseeker, begin? Well, right off the bat, the music and the video quality, it's just, it's not good. It's not great. And it's very 2002. It is. But as soon as they played the opening intro, I thought, Labyrinth? Yes. I know we talked about a literal labyrinth in the last video, but the intro here sounds like it's the intro song from Labyrinth. And yet it still rings true to 2002. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it has this sort of like um, electronic sound to an electric guitar. Yeah, you know, but... I'll play it here and I'll play This is The Labyrinth And this is Hellseeker And this is the first time that I'm going to be hearing them put next to each other. So I don't know if they're really all that close, but that's what I felt when I heard it. Like, it just immediately made me think of that. It reminded me of 80s fantasy as well. The first thing that popped into my mind was Never Ending Story. And then then you said Labyrinth. And I was like, oh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> More Labyrinth. So we meet Kirsty. It's actually her. Uh-huh. Very exciting. Same actress and everything. She has a husband. And they get into a car crash. And if you've seen Carnival of Souls, or if you've seen Beetlejuice, it's very similar to that, going off the bridge, just straight into the water. Yep. And he basically leaves her. He, like, he rushes out of the car, gets up to the top, realizes that she's not behind him because the door closed behind him when he left. Uh Uh-huh. So when he goes back down there, it's too late. Yeah. He dives back down with newly refreshed lungs. She's trapped inside. The door won't open, which is weird because if the car is filled with water, the pressure equalizes and the pressure on the outside is no longer holding the door closed. So, yes, you got to push it through water, 
uh, and that's pressure that's fighting against you, but there's nothing holding the door closed like there is when the inside of the car is filled with air. When the inside of the car is filled with air and the outside is all water, it's almost impossible to open a door. But when they both have the same substance on either side, the same pressure, like there's nothing keeping those doors closed. But for whatever reason, door doesn't open. And she ends up drowning there. And he, the next thing he knows, he wakes up in a hospital. I wrote down, that was a weird shot of him sitting up. There's a lot of weird shots in this film. And yes. it... It's not the best directed film in the world. No, it's not wonderfully directed, no. And he's, like, immediately attracted to the doctor, and there's some weird shit going on in the hospital, which, for me, immediately told me he's in hell. Yeah. He'll end up having hallucinations about him being operated on, on his brain while he's still awake, and all of that, and then he'll come back... And Allison, this doctor, who he calls by her first name, will say, like, oh, you're still having hallucinations. And so it's like, whoa, is it hallucinations inside of hallucinations? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, she explains that he's been having lots of bad dreams and bad headaches, but that's probably just because of his head trauma. Yeah, he, I mean, like, he's immediately, like, drawn to every woman that he encounters. And it's like, I wrote down, your wife just died. Yeah, it's a lot of weird things happen to him, and he has a lot of weird reactions. A bunch of weird things happen. We will get a lot of shots of him on this bus. So, like, the indication is Yeah, he takes that, the bus a lot? Yeah. He'll constantly, like, wake up on the bus. So the yeah. question is... And every time he does, the people are a little bit different. They're a little bit weirder, even though they're weird from the get-go. Yeah. When he gets home, Pinhead is there and says, all problems solved, and then disappears. Yes. <laughs> And it becomes so clear that Pinhead was not originally a part of this story. Yeah. He is just sprinkled throughout randomly. Right. And you're thinking that maybe this, is this a monkey's paw scenario? Did he go to Pinhead? Did he use the lament configuration or whatever to wish his wife away? And now they've solved that problem in a terrible way because now... I don't think we've said, I don't know if he's, if it's pointed out to him at this point or not yet, but there's a detective who is being nice, but I think it's pretty obvious, thinks that he did something to his wife, but his wife is missing. Nobody knows where she is. She wasn't there when they pulled the car out and he doesn't understand it and he can't explain it. And this nice cop, this good cop has a bad cop, a partner who's like, Oh, listen, fuckhead, I know you did it. And, you know, like all of that stuff. So, like, is this a sort of monkey's paw situation where he wished his wife away and now he's the prime suspect? Perhaps. He sees all kinds of crazy shit. He keeps having hallucinations. He finds out that he and his boss are having an affair. Yes, that he was unaware of. He's like, what the fuck is going on here? And then, yeah, it's very obvious that they're having an affair. He even says where my wife just died. And she goes, I know, it's perfect. <laughs> but, like, he pretty much says no. Yeah. He he turns her away. She's which, like, what the fuck is your problem? Yeah, to which she says, get some work done. We're watching you. And, like, the indication has been that at his work, there are cameras everywhere and he's being watched. So she's just like, I don't give a shit that everybody just wanted to see us having sex. I th- Well, yeah, I think the implication is that she is the head watcher and doesn't really care. That anyone, because anyone else who sees it works for her. 
He starts getting random shit sent to him. He gets videos of his affairs. He gets an article about the crash. And then he starts to throw up water, which again, and then an eel comes out. And it's like, could it be more obvious that he drowned and died? Yeah. And uh-huh. is in hell? Uh-huh. I don't think it could be. I do love that like, at some point somebody asks him, are you okay? And he goes, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Did I ever tell you about the time I was working retail? I'm sure I did. And this guy comes in and he's just kind of like, he walks in almost at speed. He's not running, but he's just like, he has a purpose. He's headed towards the back of the store. And I'm like, hey man, how's it going? And his response is, bad. <laughs> it's so terrible. It's so terrible. But I was working in there. I was the manager. I had my assistant manager and our third key were both there with me. And I was like, well, I got to go outside or else I will bust up laughing right in this guy's face. And then I can't remember if it was my third key or my assistant manager. One of them also left outside and we were laughing about it. And finally, when we were able to calm down, go back inside, (laughs) the the person we left behind was like, you sons of bitches. (laughs) Because he had to stay inside and couldn't. He had to keep it in. And it's just that response was bad. I think his friend stole $5 from him or something, and that's why he was upset. We didn't know that at the time. So then he has a flashback to their five-year anniversary, and he got her a present, and this apparently surprises her. She's just like, I can't believe you got me a present for Uh our anniversary. Yeah. It's very obvious that it's the fucking lament configuration. It's a little fucking box. Yeah. Like, uh it's, it's so obvious, but he's like, see if you can open it. But I think he's interrupted in his reverie by his boss again, who, like, says, don't make me beat you. Where is it? You can say goodbye to that promotion. Yeah. So it's like she wants the lament configuration, but I don't think that ever comes up again. We also didn't mention his uh, co-worker, Brett, who hands him a card of somewhere to go to, like, she knows exactly. She'll take one look at you and know exactly what to do. Like, he seems to be, like... Buddy, you're acting weird, but here you go. Here's a card to an acupuncturist that, you know, you think is going to be a prostitute or something like that. Yes. There's a cool moment where I forget what exactly is happening. The camera is showing that he is doing something with another woman, but he's obviously not. He's sitting there in front of the camera and he like puts his hand in front of it. Well, that's one thing we learned. And his hand is there. That was such a cool moment. Yeah. That's one thing we learn is that he apparently records everything. And that's also part of his sexual kink when his boss comes by his apartment and is like, you know, uh, that's when she says, where is it? She's that's talking about what the she camera. Meant when she said, where yeah. is it? The camera. Uh-huh. And he kicks her out. But when he comes back in, the camera is, is still set up and he sees her on top of him on a chair and they're making out and they're going at it. And he's like, what? And he looks at the chair and it's empty. Yeah. And then he waves his hand in front of the camera and it shows up in the image that he's watching, which was a cool moment. I was like, oh, man, his hand better show up. And it did. It was I was very, very satisfied cool by that. And then he watches the Cenobites show up and kill her. Yes. And that's when suddenly he's broken out of his reverie again uh-huh. by the guy he works with. Who's like, it must be nice to get paid for doing nothing. <laughs> uh-huh. But also it's around here somewhere that, oh yeah, it's here after their conversation. He asks, has anyone seen Gwen? Yes. Who's the boss? Yes. Mm-hmm. Anybody seen Gwen? But yeah, he gives him the acupuncturist address. So he goes there and while she has all these pins in him, 
She's saying you're- Get it? Get it, people? Yes. She says you're looking for a way out of your wife who suffocates you, which is funny because he was suffocated. (laughs) If Kelsey's theory is correct. Yes. But while he's down, Pinhead shows up again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with acupuncture pins, you can't move, apparently. You know, you're just, you're pinned down, literally. No, you're not. But (laughs) (laughs) Pinhead takes one of his nails and sticks it through his neck. Uh Uh-huh. But that's just a hallucination. Yes, total hallucination. So I wrote down somewhere around here, I'm not liking the anything could be a hallucination angle this story has. It sort of kills the stakes. And this is how I went into the first half of this movie or so. And by the end of the movie, I will have changed my mind. Because they just keep going, and the things he sees get weirder and weirder, and... The twists keep coming, and I'm like, you know what? This is fun. I don't know what's going to happen next. Anything could happen. happen. And I don't need to worry about anything. It kind of relieved me of having to worry about the plot at all. I also like that Pinhead has this little speech here where he's talking about how, you know, we can bring you the best of pleasure and pain, but personally, I prefer the pain. Uh Which do you find more exhilarating, Trevor? The pain or the pleasure? Personally. I prefer pain. But yeah, so he gets broken out of that hallucination, and now he's talking to the cops, who are, of course, saying that he did it. And he explains, you know, she did have an inheritance, but, and she didn't like to talk about her past. And he had no idea that there was any inheritance. He's like, what are you talking about? I didn't know anything about that. And they're like, we think you did. <laughs> Yeah, and the cop says, I've got a bad feeling about you. He keeps getting called into the station. Like, repeat, anytime they need to be like, well, move on to the next plot beat, he gets a call from the cops saying, come down to the station. Yes. And something new happens. Either they want to give him a chance to change his story, or uh, they found out about the inheritance, or, you know, like, there's always something, some reason for him to get called down to the station. We haven't mentioned it, but there is this hippie chick that lives His on neighbor. Him. Yeah, his neighbor. Who apparently he's also having an affair with. Yeah, and that becomes really confusing. Okay, so th- the implication is that he's having an affair with his neighbor. And she keeps coming back and keeps trying to get it, get with him. But he keeps not doing it. But this time, he decides, fuck it, I will have sex with you. But while they are, he, she turns into a Cenobite. Mm-hmm. But then he wakes up. So he's like, what the fuck? So he runs down to her house and he's like, what's going on? Uh, 2002. Some oh, more than 15 years later, this is going to be a major plot point in where he thinks he's carrying on a relationship with his neighbor. And when he finally decides to confront her, she's like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you talking about? Why are you here? And it turns out he never had a relationship with her. Just, I I don't think they stole it. I probably never saw this movie, but I'm like, this is 15 years earlier, and that was this is only a minor plot point in this movie. Well, when did your when did your girl make her movie about being in love with her neighbor that she wasn't really in a relationship with? Oh yeah, when was that one? Audrey Tattoo. I mean, not to just give total spoilers for a movie you probably haven't seen. <laughs> that was 2000. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say the movie, the name of the movie, because I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but. An Audrey Tattoo movie from the year 2000. (laughs) There were a couple. It was before Amelie, actually. 
but so he runs down there to her house and he she's married to like this big big dude who's like what the fuck are you doing here and she's like i don't know who this guy is i don't know what's going on and he, he leaves and he's like i'll talk to you later and the boyfriend's like yeah make it way later <laughs> and i wrote down that was an interesting twist uh-huh. because up until this point he's been totally like what the fuck is going on and then the first like time, get away from me why are you being so forward like i'm, I'm not gonna sleep with you and then the first time he's like "Ooh, okay she's like who the hell are you uh-huh because you start to think like oh is he really carrying on a relationship with her and he just doesn't remember because of his brain injury but no that's not what's happening that was what was happening with his boss and again during this time at one point pinhead shows up again and says all problems solved that will become a thing that we'll learn about at the end of the film i'm just going to kind of run through these things because i this movie, guys, gets very hard to plot, plot point because yeah. it just gets all over the place. So that's why we're not going like from very specific plot point to very specific plot point because it's... Because, again, if you've seen movies like Jacob's Ladder yeah. or Stay or... Um, oh, I remember Stay. Carnival of Souls, then you understand why everything is so disjointed. But if you don't, then you're just sitting there like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> So I wrote down, now there's no one in the room. His co-workers tell him to be quiet. And then I start writing about his interaction with whoever must have given him the box. Because it says, once you open the box, there is no returning. Everyone learns the price. That's Doug Bradley, by the way, with a really bad chin beard and long scraggly hair. Acting as this vendor in this weird shop that's dark and dingy. And who's selling him, apparently, the Lament Configuration. La Marchand's box. Why is this actor always half smiling? <laughs> Dean he's Winters? Ne- he's never not smiling. There's always a hint of a smile on his face. It doesn't matter well, what's going on. Because I think most the of the movie, he's just like, what the fuck? No, I'm pretty sure that's just what this actor does. And usually he's in comedies, so it's okay that he's smiling. <laughs> then I wrote, why would he say he thinks he killed Kirsty at work, even if the cop wasn't there? Well, okay, yeah, so he walked in and he's talking to his co-worker, Brett, and he's like, the cops think I did it. And when he turns, the cop is there. Yeah, Brett's like, uh, I got a report to do. <laughs> and that's when we find out that the cop is sitting at his desk at work. Like, make yourself at home. Oh, I already have. <laughs> yes. There's a bunch of other things. His co-worker, like, then brings up the plan to kill his wife, like, Which talks is about- new information. He finds out that there was a plan to kill his wife for the first time from Brett. To get the inheritance. Yeah. That he, apparently he already knew the inheritance existed. He made a plan with Brett to kill her, and they were going to split the money. And then apparently, as far as Brett's concerned, Trevor, our main character, went rogue and killed her on his own. And so he's like, well, now they think you did it. You're not going to get the inheritance. I'm not going to get my half. I am so fucking pissed at you right now. And he has a gun on him. He says, got to tell you, buddy, the amnesia routine's starting to get a little fucking old. Lang's on to you. And it's only a matter of time before he's on to me. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. I'd rather spend it in hell. With you. And he lifts the gun and you think he's going to shoot Trevor. Instead, he shoots himself, commits suicide. 
That's why he's going to hell. Yes, and when that happens, he suddenly wakes up at the acupuncturist again. Yep. And she's saying, we need to heal your soul, give in. And he's just like, I don't know what's real anymore. I don't know what's going on. Everything is fucked up. She, like, climbs on top of him, and all the pins that were on his stomach are just mysteriously gone. Suddenly they're gone. Uh Uh-huh. And she's going to stab him. No, she does stab him. But then when he wakes up, somebody's telling him you collapsed on the bus. Yeah. When he's asking for Allison, the doctor that he's attracted to, everybody's like, who the fuck is Allison? Uh-huh. I love this moment, too, where he gets up and he's just like, Jesus Christ, you people, I'm sick of this shit. <laughs> he just like gets, I kind of love that. It's imperative that you stay calm. This might sting a little. Just relax, Trevor. Remember, we're You're all... all here for me. Go ahead. Say it. Jesus Christ. So tired of shit. Trevor. I'm tired of all you people. Trevor! And then she's there and she's like, hey, I heard you were looking for me, which doesn't make any sense because uh-huh. everyone just said they don't know who you're talking about. And then as he's talking to her, the guy, the janitor in the room is like, who are you talking to, buddy? Yeah, who the hell are you talking to? And he's like, wait, what the fuck is going on right now? Yes. And so he goes to find the shop where he bought the box and it's empty. Then he goes to the acupuncturist to see what's going on there. And sure enough, she did. Somebody's jangling the doorknob and he's freaking out. So he takes the ice pick out of her, putting his prints all over it and grabs it as like a weapon to defend himself. The door bursts open and it's the police. Yes. Well, fuck, dude. (laughs) Now what? This is when Brett kills himself and he's like, you know, tonight was supposed to be the night, you fucker. Yeah. And he uh kills himself. Yeah. The acupuncturist is dead. (laughs) And then I wrote down, this movie would have been a whole lot better with a different lead actor and better pacing. Because the Probably, pacing yes. is all over the place. Yes. Sometimes things are going quickly. Sometimes things slow to a grinding halt. And it's just like, I don't... I Maybe it's supposed to feel that way because we're supposed to be put into his shoes. And so everything feels disjointed and all over the place. Uh-huh. Maybe that's what's going on. But I would prefer... Either get the pace going or started a run. I don't like run, stop, run, stop. I don't yeah. enjoy that. So the police show up and take him to jail. And they like interrogate him for a little bit. It's good cop and then bad cop and then good cop. And then... Then good cop takes him down and like you're starting to notice how weird this is. He starts to take him into like the basement or something and then they're going down this long corridor and then there's a jail cell door but it's not to a jail it just moves further on down this corridor and he opens it up for him he walks in the door closes behind him and he's like what the fuck and then good cop like looks at him and says something and then bad cop comes off of the back of his head like he's fucking Voldemort or something it says something witty or whatever and he's like the snake coming off the back of good cop's head good and bad Trevor honest dishonest Righteous and evil. That's how we're all made. It's a little of both. It's just a question of how much of each. And we're made up of just the right parts of both. (laughs) A little heavy on the evil, huh? Okay, I knew something was going on between the two of them because they were never in the same place at the same time. He would always 
get up from good cop's desk and then bad cop would stop him or good cop would leave and then bad cop would come in. And it was always like that. They were partners, but they were never together at the same time. So you knew something was up, but this is how you decide to represent that visually looks terrible. Yeah. The CG is very bad, Uh huh. but it, it falls in line with what we know of the series, but you know, like the claymation in part two was charming. This is not at all. Early 2000s CG is oof. Unless you're like Lord of the Rings or something. So we finally get to see what really happened with Kirsty. Trevor thinks they found Kirsty's body and he is just supposed to ID it. And then when he gets there, when he keeps going further in and he, he arrives at what he thinks is the morgue, he finds a body, he pulls off the sheet. And it's not Kirsty, it's him. Ooh. But then Pinhead shows up. And Pinhead's like, hey man, I told you you'd know more than you'd ever want to know. And this is it. And Pinhead sets him down for a little story time. <laughs> and he tells this story of Trevor planning to kill her, having all these affairs, buying the box, giving it to her as a gift. And she's like, what the fuck did you do and as far as i know like i don't know if it's a coincidence or he knew that she had a history with this box it's not clear it's not clear at all then we get an argument of them in the car they're arguing about the affairs and and how like he wants to fix things but we know he's planning on killing her later and she draws a gun on him and she shoots him in the head while they're driving and they go plunging into the river and what we find out from Pinhead is that she opened the box because no. she, yes, yeah, she opened I the box because knew she knew that. she knew that he was planning to kill her. But I thought that I thought that she said, "Fine, I'll do it," and she did it right in front of him. No, because he doesn't know the deal she made when Pinhead showed up to her. Exactly, I don't, I don't. Remember. That's why I'm saying I don't think that's the case. I think maybe fine, she'll do it, and then she did it on her own. Well, because I specifically wrote down, mm -hmm. it says chains and hooks in his face first. So. Oh, yeah, he's getting all hooked while, he, while the story is being told to him for no good goddamn reason. Yes. And when it shows Kirsty opening the box, I wrote, she says, wait, like she always does. Uh -huh. That's always what she does. Wait! Uh -huh. We meet again. How did you find me? You opened a door long ago, and it will not be closed until I get what I came for. My soul. You solved the puzzle. You unleashed the power. There is no turning back. I will not rest until I get what I want. And what I want is you. You always knew this day was coming. Felt it deep within your soul. Wait! Wait! And then she makes this deal where she's going to bring them five souls. In exchange for hers. And Pinhead's like, interesting. What if I make you a deal? Interesting. I will bring you five souls in exchange for mine. You would bring them to me yourself. You'll get your five. I was impressed with her handiwork. And as he's telling the story, he's talking about how impressed he is with Kirsty. And she goes around, she's the one who's been killing everyone this entire movie. 
She killed the boss. She killed his neighbor. She killed the acupuncturist. And she killed or caused to die Brett. Yes. What Trevor realizes, much to his chagrin, is that he is the fifth soul. Yeah, I wrote, I'm the fifth soul. Wah, wah. Sad face. I'm the fifth soul. Pinhead says they are all with me now. He tells him the balance is only four souls, and that, as you now know, was not our contract. And this is when Trevor realizes he's the fifth soul, yeah. I love Pinhead's line here. Now for the worst nightmare of all, reality. (laughs) Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. And then we find out that the reason he's been seeing the chick at the hospital is because the lady in the morgue talks to talks to cadavers. Yeah. And one of the people is like, God, why do you talk to cadavers? It's so, so weird. weird. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, the, so the idea is that people can still hear you when they're dead, which is a really weird and fucked up thing to think about. Uh-huh. But also, again, that's straight out of stay. That is that is stolen from stay. <laughs> well, it's not it's not the only you know a lot of these. The whole movie was a hallucination. Turns out he's really crazy, or he's actually dead, or whatever. There are a lot of movies that do that. It also reminded me of ghost stories as well. Yeah. So a lot of similar things happen in and horror so, movies where you're supposed to be in hell, especially like Jacob's Ladder too. Uh-huh. Yes, there we go. Yeah, Jacob's Ladder. We see Good Cop talking to Kirsty, who is alive. And is explaining that we were driving, and he lost it, and he killed himself, and we went right into the river, and I thought I was going to die or whatever, and good cop's like, you've been very brave, or whatever it is that he says to her. Whenever anybody says that to somebody in one of these situations, I'm like, you are jumping to conclusions, man. Well, at this point, he thinks that her husband murdered all those people? Yes. He's really a serial killer at this point. Right, and that he killed himself out of guilt. Which happened before the car went into the river, which is a weird flip of the timeline there. But he gives her something, like... Here's something to remember. Your oh, it's the it's, the it's the box, right? It's the box, which is supposed to be the big twist. Like, oh, she got the box back. But more importantly, he thinks that her husband was a serial killer and then killed himself in front of her, almost killing her. Yes. Uh-huh. Here's something to, to remember, remember him by. by. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yep. Why would I want that? And that's where the movie ends. I agree. But I, that's like, there's a lot of things I don't like about this. And I, w- I want to be able to justify myself why I said it's really interesting. is because the plot is ultimately interesting. What it does with Kirsty's character is ultimately interesting. Like, she continues to live her life after the first two movies. She gets into a relationship that ends up going south. This person decides to kill her. And instead, she's like, you know what? If I'm going to be haunted by this box and these Cenobites... For the rest of my life, I might as well try to take advantage of it at this point. And she turns and she becomes a killer. Like, it's interesting in a way that that's not like trying to make her badass and that's why it's right. interesting. She can't help the things that happen to her. Yeah. Like, she wasn't trying to go down this path. Yeah, it's almost like the path twisted her, you know, in a, in a way that's much better than like Saw, where what's her face 
is a victim initially and then decides like all these victims in Saw that are like, now I'm going to do your bidding because now I know what it's like, how precious life is. It's so fucking stupid. (laughs) Sorry, I do not like Saw. This is a, a lot more interesting to me. It's not that she's like, oh, I love Pinhead now and I love everything that he stands for after he's terrorized me and taught me how precious the pain is or anything like that. It's no, my life is totally fucked and I might as well start using it to my advantage. Yep. And I think that's much more interesting. I agree. And that's what I really, really like about this movie is that in one movie, it completely changes the arc of Kirsty's life, but not in a way that feels too contrived or doesn't account for everything that happened in the first two movies. This very much does. So I think it's cool. I think seeing it from the husband's perspective is really interesting. Once you let yourself go to, as I say, the chaos of anything that happens... You start to, you know, yeah, there are no stakes anymore, but you start to become really curious about what's going to happen next more than anything. And you just kind of let it wash over you. Yeah, there are bad things about this movie, things that I do not like, things that are dumb as hell and the bad CG. But in here, in concept, there's something really, really cool. And I like that about it. Again, I don't know if it's just that I'm in a really fucking good mood for this week's episode or what, but... It's not, I thought it was going to be way worse than this, especially with straight-to-video Hellraiser sequels. Number six. (laughs) Like, come on. This is going to be terrible. But, yeah, it wasn't great. But there's some really cool shit here. That's all I had to say. (laughs) I thought it was just a little bit, it was a little bit of a mess because it's very obvious that it was not supposed to be a Hellraiser movie first and foremost. And those things did feel tacked on. But I did appreciate the way that they did make it into a complete story. And yes, I I love that a movie that was not originally intended to be a Hellraiser movie ended up giving a very interesting story for Kirstie. Yeah. I agree there. I just think this movie needed a lot of work. It yes. the main actor was not didn't work for me and uh-huh. the pacing was bad and the video quality is no good and <laughs> the CG is terrible. But it is a fun romp. And it does, like I said, it falls in line with what I would hope for in a Hellraiser movie. So, Mm -hmm. ultimately, I liked it, even though it's very flawed. Yes, I would agree. So, with that said, out of eight reviews, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 30. Okay, here's the thing. It has a zero and no consensus statement. Yikes. Because it's only eight reviews. But, like, I feel like eight reviews is just too little. Like, I I don't know. That zero seems drastic. That's it, yeah. The audience score is 33%. There you go. So I'm thinking about maybe just using the audience score on this one. Because otherwise it's 100% going to end up in our biggest discrepancies list at the end of the year. Yes. So what do you think it should have? I would give it a 65. Yeah. I enjoyed it enough. And I thought that it... Like I said, it's just, it's impressive that it went from a movie that had nothing to do with Hellraiser to including all the things I would have wanted out of a Hellraiser movie. It's just, unfortunately, there were all this other shit that held it back. Yeah. So I'm going to give it 65. Yeah, I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to go 68. Not quite as high. I gave the last one a 69 nice. But it's still, it's not in the 70s at all. But just conceptually, I love thinking about what this movie does to the lore. It's pretty cool. 
yes, a lot of garbage, but they could have made a hack movie. It would have been terrible. All this bad stuff we said about it would have still been present and it would have had none of the good stuff. And it would have just been something that they turned out really quickly and just vomited out into home video. And at least they did something cool with this bullshit. You know what I mean? So 68, I think, is what I'm going to give it. And that is 2002's Hellraiser Hellseeker, thus ending our Hell, 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 Hell week on Pod Cemetery. <laughs> you can always find us at our website, podcemetery.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery. There's a lot of extra stuff that goes up on there. If you're curious about anything that we talked about here and you'd like to get the uh, visual equivalent, you can follow us on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. A five-star written review is the biggest help you can give us there. Sharing us with your friends is even better than that. And even better than that is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Even in hell, your pain will be legendary. You can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1988's Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. I was about to call it Hellbound Hellseeker. <laughs> hell, 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 hell. It's a mummy in an evening gown. Every single time you say anything could happen, I think of that song, I think by Ellie Goulding. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. She just repeats it over and over again, and you keep repeating it over and over again, so I think you should put it in there after every time you say anything can happen. Yeah, stay. Stay. Have I ever told my story about stay? I don't think so. So, okay, I was in college, and I was kind of bragging, and I was like, I've seen tons of movies. I've seen movies that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> and this dipshit was like, have you ever seen stay? And, okay. Stay is a stupid name for a fucking movie. How am uh -huh. I supposed to remember? I, I was like, what? Stay. Stay? Stay. No. And then I looked it up later. I was like, I have fucking seen that stupid <laughs> ass movie. Who would remember a title like that? Yeah, it's a bad title. It's a bad title. Ewan McGregor, Ryan Gosling. Naomi Watts. Yes, of course I've Bob seen Bob Hoskins, Janine Garofalo. I also love that he wanted to prove me wrong by saying a Ewan McGregor movie. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> really obscure. <laughs> but yeah, I've I've thought about that night ever since. Uh-huh. That was He still thinks about how stupid you are, exactly, Kelsey. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, here's something to, to remember, remember him by. Yeah. <laughs>